Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Hey, everybody. It's Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. But more importantly, it's about recovery. And it's brought to you by our friends at knowyourscript.org. They're a wealth of knowledge if you are battling opioids. If you want to be an advocate for your own health, that is where you need to go. They can give you tips on talking to your doctor, talking to your kids, and seeing what suitable uh, uh alternatives there are out there for you. So go check them out, knowyourscript.org. Now, this is the part of the podcast where I'd probably introduce Dr. Matt, but he's not here today because, well, we've had some scheduling conflicts, uh, summer's upon us, uh, graduation, uh, all kinds of stuff. And I'll just tell you what it is. It's life. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to play you one of our earliest podcasts of a man named Casey Tucker. We're going to hear about him in just a second. But before we get to that, I'd like to take this time and thank everybody for everything that you have done to make this podcast a success. It really is. And I I wish I could share the comments that I receive on a daily basis from around the world. Uh, And it really is from around the world of how this podcast is helping people either overcome their addiction or understand their addicted loved ones uh, that are in their lives. And so we are really a great community and doing wonderful things. And it wouldn't be possible if it wasn't for you guys out there who every week download this podcast and listen to the stories of hope. Because that's really what this podcast is, is because it's hope. Hope that there's a better life. Hope that there's a, a, a light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, you know, often on this podcast, we talk about Memes, memes in recovery. And one that I truly love is I gave up everything for one thing, and that was Bud Light. Uh, now I gave up one thing, which is Bud Light, and I get to have everything. And everything includes this beautiful world, my kids, my family, my loved ones, my job, you guys being able to do this podcast. Another one meme that uh, I heard the other day. And uh, if you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, you know that there's usually a part in the podcast when somebody hits their rock bottom. And for some reason, people need to hit a rock bottom. And that's when they get sick and tired of being sick and tired. That's when they search for different alternatives and, and a way out. Um, and we want this podcast as be a a precursor to hitting your rock bottom that maybe you can hear somebody else's story and know where yours is going and go, I don't want to hit that low and I don't want to lose everything. And, and, and I don't want that to happen, but sometimes it's inevitable. Uh, 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 there was many times during my addiction that I should have hit rock bottom, but it wasn't a rock bottom. And that'll get back to me to my original point is the easiest way to get out of a hole is to stop digging. Now it sounds just kind of, Silly, but it's the truth. A lot of times when we're in our active addiction, uh, we don't know what to do and you get caught in this vicious cycle and you don't know how to get out. So you just keep doing what you've been doing and hope that there's going to be a change. But there isn't a change. And they say the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome. So sometimes we need to stop digging. Listen. And that's what this podcast is about. And so that's what we want to do. I was, I, I spent a lot of time on the internet, probably too much. And I heard this guy come on and I'm a sucker. I, I, I'm one of those guys that get bait clicked or whatever it is all the time. I do. I, I go, okay, I got to see how this ends. And so I see this guy and he's talking to a girl and she's a mom. And she tells this story of how on Sunday night she was cooking a lamb leg for her family. And right before she put the lamb leg in the oven, she cut the end of it off. And her daughter goes, Mom, why did you cut the end of that lamb leg off? And she goes, well, to be honest, I really don't know. My mom just used to do that. But you know what we can do? We can find out. So she calls her mom on the phone and goes, Mom, I was just cooking dinner for my daughter, and I was putting the lamb leg in the oven, and I cut the end off just like you used to do. And she wanted to know why. And the mom Mom, the mom's mom goes, well, 
to be honest with you, I don't really know either. My mom used to do that. And so they go back and forth and they talk about it. And then they finally find out the reason why the mom's mom's mom used to cut off the leg of the lamb leg. And it was because way back then, the ovens were smaller than the ovens than we have now. So they used to cut the end off so it would fit. Now, you're probably saying this is kind of a silly story, Casey. How does this tie into mental health and addiction? Well, a lot of times we're doing what we're doing just because the person in front of us was doing it. And we are now to a point in society and in recovery that we need to stop and ask questions. Why are we doing this? How do we break the chain of cycle? How do we, how do we give our kids something different? But that's how we got information back then. It was handed down from generation to generation, sometimes without asking why. So that's what we want to do on this podcast. There's not just one way up Sober Mountain, and it's not abstinence. And I'm going to tell you, alcohol and drugs are bad. There's no doubt that alcohol and drugs are bad. But we've got to find out the reason why we're gravitating towards alcohol and drugs. What are we trying to numb? What are we trying to escape from? And get those answers and go back and heal that wound so that we don't feel like we need to escape reality. We don't need our numb ourselves from our past. And so that's what we want to do is we want this podcast to be an open forum for people to come in and share their stories and tell us why they got sober, how they got sober. Because the reality is there's so many different ways to do it. And abstinence isn't the opposite of addiction. Connection is. And that's what we're trying to do with this podcast is connect with our community, connect with our loved ones, connect with our family and find a better way out. Because you'll go back and you'll listen to a lot of these episodes and you'll go, I don't know how they came back. We've had episodes where people you go and you came back. And not only did you come back, you came back better than before and you're living a happier, healthier Fulfillful, that's probably not a word, but life, you know, and it, it fulfilling, that's the word. And that's what this is all about. And so it really is amazing to me that because uh, of you guys, we're allowed to do this. I'm going to leave you one with one last meme. And I adopted it early on in my recovery because it's something that really meant a lot to me. Because there was a time it was ugly and I thought I could end up in jail. I didn't know if I'd be able to see my kids. I didn't know if I'd be able to walk down the street with my head held high because I did some stupid stuff and could have hurt a lot of people and could have ruined my life forever. And I remember sitting there going, this can't be it. Out of all the stuff you've done in this world, this cannot be how your story ends. I didn't want people to tell stories of Casey Scott and have this be the ending. And that's prideful, and I know, but, I, but I'm that, that kind of guy. I'm going to be honest with you. This is not how my story ends. I'm not going to be a guy who they told great stories about, and then he messed it up, and he was gone. Sorry, guys. You don't get rid of me that easy. I'm here to stay. I never thought I'd be the poster boy for recovery, but I'll take it, and I'm happy to have it. But I leave you with this. Make your mess your message. And that's what I've been trying to do with this podcast is make my mess. And it was a mess. My message. And the message is, is that recovery is possible. Life does get better. And that's what it's all about. So I'm excited to introduce you to a guy we had on probably two years ago. We share a name. And an addiction. They're not the same addiction, but an addiction's an addiction. His name is Casey Tucker. He talks about how when he was young, through physical and mental abuse, led him to join the wrong group of guys. Ultimately, joining a gang. And then that gang, he tries to leave, ends up almost beating him to death. It pushes him to the edge where he thinks suicide's the answer. So he takes a gun and he puts it under his chin. 
He pulls the trigger. And he doesn't die. But what does he do? He comes back and he uses his mess to make his message. Enjoy Casey Tucker. You're listening to Project Recovery. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent. It was senseless. And I will never understand it. I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson. And unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. But more importantly, Dr. Matt, it's about... It's about recovery. And my road to recovery began with Pinnacle Recovery. If you know somebody who needs some help, have them do what I did and give Pinnacle Recovery Center a call. So it's New Year's Eve. Right. What are your New Year's... Are you excited? Yes. Well, yes. I really am. So I'm going to do something with my kids. Uh, We're going to do fireworks. Oh, okay. Yeah, fireworks are legal. Big time. Yeah. Are they legal this time? I guess yeah. there's not much of a fire risk, right? No, but like a, they are legal on New Year's Eve. They are they are legal. At least okay. as far as I know. Well, it's, it's, we're going to wait and see, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. My, when I was a kid, my mom would have us uh, do, like, do people do, this is sort of embarrassing. Bang pots and pans? Pots and pans. Yeah. We, yeah. No, we did that as did a kid. Did you guys do that? Yeah. We, yeah. Okay. yeah. But I it was never at, the good pots and pans. Because I'm looking around as an adult, I've never seen anybody else do that. I've... I've Never lived in a neighborhood where people came out with pots and pans, and we, but we did that. Yeah, we banged pots and pans. Okay. I remember my little brother Ryan got in trouble once because he used the good pot. Oh. Yeah, you don't take the good pot out there. It's got to be all clad out yeah. there smacking you it You can't be doing that. No, no, this was like the stuff that was in the camper or in the very back. Okay. They still had egg fried on it or <laughs> right. top ramen, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah, like the pans at my house. And, or the little poppers. Oh, yeah, we got the poppers. I think we have some this year. We don't have any fireworks. Maybe I could look into that, make a run up to Wyoming or something. And I think there's actually some some places around here. Oh, are they selling them? Yeah. Okay. But now it's one of those things is like, now that I'm sober... I don't see past ten o'clock a lot, right? I'm I'm ready to go into bed about nine thirty, and you know when the kids were little, we would do New York New Year's Eve, oh. right? And so it was ten o'clock, and we'd turn on the TV, psych them out. They would think that they celebrated New Year's. And this put is them not to the bed. New Year's Eve you're looking for, exactly, exactly. But now I want to do that for myself. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. Yeah, New York New Year's Eve, and then I can go to bed. Tell me it's time to go to bed, Ryan Seacrest. Exactly, I'm ready to go. But you probably. Uh, I mean, how do you plan New Year's Eve now that you're sober? In the past, it was probably what? Like I got to hit the liquor store part, before they right? close. Yeah. I've got to make sure there's a club I'm going to that's going to have a table. You I might have been DJing yeah, parties, DJing. right? Yeah. I DJed last New Year's Eve at Maxwell's. And so, you know, I, I'm just excited to be with my kids. And really, this is a big New Year's Eve for me because this is my first like years sober. I mean, I know I've got last year you were sober on New Year's, was, but it yeah. was just coming. Were you out of recovery so, yet? Yeah, no. So I was about three months out. I got yeah. out in October, and okay. so. But this is kind of cool. So I can't imagine uh, where I'm at right now. I mean, I couldn't have fathomed it, you know, a year ago. Yeah. And, and all these cool things, having going to speak to the court system, doing this podcast with you, out there working with Pinnacle Recovery, helping people get on their right. road to recovery. So it's amazing. So, you know, they say and you fireworks need- instead of fire water. That's right. On New Year's. I like what you did there. Yeah. Fire water is a, a cinnamon whiskey for those who don't know what that is. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty good. Um it was pretty good. It isn't. It isn't good. Yeah. No, this is about recovery. We're, we're digressing, yeah. Uh-huh. But I'm really excited because you need to pick a word yeah. for the year. That's what they say. That's the new thing now. Pick so a word that's, that's going to define new... 2020 for you. Oh, that's pretty heavy. So if you had to pick a word. If I had to pick one word. Uh-huh, that you would focus on, that you would put your attention behind. Enthusiasm. I love it. 
But you've got a lot of enthusiasm. You know, I could use more. I think I think there are certain areas of my life. Um, uh, the last few years, uh, I've gotten off track with uh, my fitness, and I think that's something I could uh, use a little more enthusiasm for. And certain areas of my work, I love working with uh, the people I work with, patients and, and clients. But uh, there's a lot that I do on the academic side that I think a little more enthusiasm for would be fun. So maybe that would be my word. What's your word? You know, being thrown on the spot like this, I, the thing that popped into my head first, and I usually go with that, Yeah, momentum. Oh, okay. And I want to take the momentum that I have right now and keep pushing forward in it. But I also want to take that momentum and use it in all aspects of my life, with relationships, with my kids, with my job, with my family, and just keep pushing forward. Yeah, I like that. That fits you. So well, that, that, that's think, a, yeah. that, I'm I'm going with it. I'm not going to get a tattoo of it or anything, but that's what I'm going. Get a, get a tattoo in Chinese characters. You know, uh, speaking of, of tattoos, that. let's yeah. go to our guest. His name is Casey. He's from Ogden, and uh, you've got a lot of tattoos, brother. A couple. What was your first tattoo? It was Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> Josh, producer Josh has probably the same one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, so, Casey, we always like to start from the beginning. How does your story begin? My story begins in Sunset, Utah, really is where, where it begins. Um, I was uh, raised by a single mother. Um, we didn't have very much money. And um, it was pretty tough times. My mom didn't really know much about raising a kid, being her first kid. My dad left at a young age, and she was in a frustrated place, and she used to beat me all the time. I mean, I had a rough childhood growing up, you know, and this is kind of how this is going to go. Um, so when I was going to school, I wouldn't have very nice clothes and stuff like that. I used to get made fun of a lot in school, and uh, I remember going to junior high school, there was a lot more kids, you know, it wasn't just the old elementary. Now we have kids from all over the area and, uh, there'd be people that were picking on me cause I wore floods, you know, I just didn't have very nice clothes. And I remember there was a, some girls that came up to me. It's like, you know, you're a pretty cool guy. You know, you got a good attitude and, you know, you seem really friendly. Maybe you should dress a little bit differently and, you know, maybe more people would pay attention, you know, to you and come talk to you instead of making fun of you. So they were being genuine. They saw something in you. They did. And, like you know. a makeover. In yeah. <laughs> elementary yeah, school. But, right? Elementary school makeover. Well, it was junior high at that junior time. High, okay. Junior high at that time. Unfortunately, what I didn't know at the time is that when I changed the way I dressed, you know, I seen all these kids in school, you know, the, ba- the bad kids, like the bad boys, you know, and I'm like, oh, man, you see those guys that all oh, those guys are cool. You know, everyone's walking around acting like they're cool. I'm like, I want to be one of those guys too. So I changed my clothes. My mom actually came up with some money, which was great because typically she was beating on me and I was pretty surprised that she decided to get me some new clothes. So she got me some new clothes and everything and I started hanging out with the the wrong crowd. You know, I I thought it was the good crowd, the in crowd. It ended up being the wrong crowd. Um, So when I was 13 years old, that's when I first started uh, using marijuana, 13. And that was the crowd that you chose to hang out with. And and I think that's kind of a common mistake. I mean, those kids look kind of tough. Yeah. And and if you're feeling on the outside, you want to feel tough and good about yourself. So you start to dress like them and hang out with them. Is that right? Right. Yep. Okay. Uh, Yep. And there is. There's an allure to the bad boys. I mean, there there really is. I mean, there's industries and there's musicians and all these guys that play to that part because it is appealing to some. And when you're 12, 13, 14, and you're trying to figure out who you are, it's so, it really is important to fit in. It's, It's really important for your self-esteem, your identity, to have a group that accepts you. And so adults listening to this, if you can't remember being that age, don't be too critical on kids that choose to be kind of in that bad boy club because you're trying to feel good about who you are. And But with that can come behaviors that aren't productive. I guess you got wrapped up in a few things. That's exactly right. So in my time of hanging around some of these people, I started getting introduced to well, first off, I wanted to I want to get the girls. Let's be honest. Right. You know, the girls like the bad guys. Yeah. And right. I was all about that. Like, yeah, that's I'm, the only I'm, reason we comb our hair. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, really. You got all the hormones going. It's like, all right, I'm going to hang out with the bad guys, get all the good, get all the good girls. Right. It didn't work that way. Uh, by the time I was 14 years old, 
I hanging out with these people, I started smoking crack cocaine at 14. So Whoa. 13 was marijuana, but by 14, by you were, 14, that you quick, were smoking I was crack? I was smoking crack cocaine wow. and taking LSD at the age of 14 years old. I, that seems crazy to it, me. It was crazy. That escalated pretty quick. It did. Uh, it started from just you know smoking weed at friends' house. I'd sneak out of my house, go to these guys' house, even leave school and. You know, smoke a joint behind the school or over at a buddy's house. It seemed innocent at the time. And when I was growing up, my stepdad was actually a drug dealer. So I was around, you know, marijuana at a young age. And I didn't really get this really bad vibe from it. But all the other drugs, like cocaine, you know, things like that, I always told myself, I'm going to never do that. And unfortunately, that came a night where it was presented to me. And I was like, why not? Why? Yeah. Why not? Just to fit in, you know, and that was. Were these other 14 year olds? Or they were, were old. They were older, kids? too. Yeah. Some of them were in high school. Some of them were a little bit older. And that's even harder to resist when you're when you're that age. Right. You know, if a, if a high schooler wants to hang out with you, that's pretty, pretty powerful. Right. Yeah. And that's what it was. It was alluring to be around all these older guys. I'm not going to be the guy that says no. I'll be the first to say yes. That's the. Yeah, that's how I, I'm a. Send it kind of guy. That's how I've always been. You know, F it. That's the way I have been. Yeah. You know? And so, you know, I started hanging out with these guys, and I think these older guys, seeing how I was, this this kid doesn't care. I mean, he's younger than this. He don't care. Like, he's doing whatever we want. So they're almost praising you. Yeah, exactly. And it made me feel good, because when I went home, it was a different environment. You know, my it was, my mom didn't, I felt like my mom didn't want me. You know, she didn't, I felt like she didn't love me. She didn't care about me. Even though she had got me some clothes, I mean, there was times where she was just beating the crap out of me. She'd make up reasons to beat the crap out of me. My stepdad's a drug dealer. That's all they seem to care about is drugs, beating on me. Yeah, here's, just be quiet and we'll give you this and move along. So while I was out with these guys, I felt like these guys care. You found a family. Yeah, these guys care. And by the time I was 15 years old, you know, moving forward a year and I was doing this stuff. And during this time, I was getting into little troubles with the law, you know, sloughing, running from cops, just doing silly stuff in the neighborhood. Um, I ended up getting introduced to a a guy who was uh, using crystal meth. I was 15 years old at the time. How old are you now? I'm 36 years old. Okay, so this is 16 years ago. This was, yeah, this was a long time ago. So it's and it's crazy looking back now, thinking you know I have a 10 year old son, right? I was 15 years old and I was smoking methamphetamines in somebody's basement at 15 years old. And I mean, like the first time I done it, I was like, whoa, like this is crazy. Like I've been up for like a day. I feel fantastic. This is the best thing I've ever, this is amazing. What? How do I get more, you know? And I started acting out. I started not going to school more. I started fighting back against my mom at this point because I felt empowered. These people I'm around were making me feel wanted and empowered, you know, plus I'm high. I mean, how do you make rash decisions? How do you make any logical decision like you that? You don't. You don't. So then I started getting incarcerated. So I was 15 years old. And right before that, I got introduced to a street gang too, right at, at the age of 15. And I joined, I joined that gang. Again, acceptance, right? And I ended up getting in trouble. I was, well, I was about 16 years old, you know, kind of moving quickly through the story. Um, first year of high school, um, I went to Northridge High School. I was in that high school for probably maybe a month. I mean, I was I was showing up to school high. I mean, I was drinking vodka on the bus. You know, I was taking Ambien and going to school and wandering around school, not knowing where I was, because people thought it was cool. I mean, looking like I said, looking back, how ludicrous was this? But but I you did, were developing a reputation, right? Absolutely. And you had to keep up your rep, and that's what people. You were kind of like, I don't know, somewhat of an entertainment probably for people like, wow, look what he's doing, right? Absolutely. And the stories about Casey were amazing. Your identity. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. that's how it was. People knew me. you know, And I had a reputation to live up to, and I didn't care. Um, so I ended up getting a charge. Uh, it was an assault charge. 
And I spent from the time I was about 16 years old, I was about 16 and a half from the time I was 18 uh, in youth corrections. So I got out of youth corrections on my 18th birthday. So you spent two years in a youth correction facility yeah. for an assault. For an assault, yeah. And it was like a year and a half. Um, and it was a lot of it was my behavior inside of the facility, right? Because I was so that didn't, out. didn't humble you getting put in the absolutely facility. not. I mean, it was like a a graduation. You know, it's just hard to describe that these guys are. You're listening to rap music. People are talking about going to prison, jail. I mean, this thing. This is something that seemed normal to me. This is part of your story, right? I mean, and my stepdad, while I was about. You know, in the time I was talking 13, 14, you know, I kind of skipped that. He had ended up getting busted for drugs and going to prison. So there was a big drug bust at my house. So this – and this was all over around me. And we're talking about this little small town here. I mean we're not talking about the middle of Salt Lake. We're not talking about West Valley. I mean this is kind of unassuming. You wouldn't think that these things were going on. You blink your were. eyes. You drove past Sunset. Yes. Yeah. It's a very small place. Um and and the neighboring area, you know, we were all around that area running around. So I get out on my 18th birthday, right? And right when I got out, what did I do? I Party. Yeah. I jumped right back into it. I got my got a job. My first paycheck was like 260 bucks. I went and bought a quarter pound of weed with my first paycheck and quit that job. That's exactly what I did. Let me ask you this. While you were incarcerated at the youth correctional facility, did you stay free of drugs and alcohol? Yes. Yes, I did. Yeah. And, and during that time you were in there, did you go to classes? Did they try to teach you life lessons? Yes, they did. Yeah. I didn't care. I just didn't care. I didn't care. I don't know why. I can't answer why I didn't care. Maybe it was my home life. Maybe the people outside, I looked up to them so much that – it just didn't matter or I didn't – maybe they didn't seem genuine to me. It was like you can't relate to me. You don't understand what it's like to live where I live and, you know – You haven't seen what I have. Yeah. Well, don't you think it's um, – I mean the way you're describing your early upbringing, you know, there's some abandonment there. I think it makes sense that you wondered if your mom really loved you the way you were being treated and you'd finally found an affiliation, a connection with people that felt – like you were important to them. And I think we really underestimate how powerful that is at any age, but especially when you're that age. And so if you had listened to the life lessons and changed your way of seeing the world inside the facility, you would have been giving away that connection, that affiliation. And I, I'm assuming that part of you wanted to hold on to that. You were just doing your time until you could get back to that group of people that supposedly cared about you, right? Right, and I thought about them often more than I thought about my family. I mean, I had grandparents that were great, okay? like So I did have that piece. I had grandparents that lived out in Hooper, and they were great people. They they helped me, but I was, wasn't always around them. Mm-hmm. Right, and I, I think that's one of the things that we see people that are heavily and at an early age involved in gangs. The gang becomes a surrogate family and and they want to hold on to that. That's part of the identity. That's part of the connection. That family that you find in a gang, uh, most of the kids that are heavily involved in gangs, for the most part, don't have loving, supporting families. They're, they're substituting their family uh, connection with right. the gang affiliation. So and family it, does what family does. They stick together. They stick right. together, right. Yeah, yeah. Right. So you get out. You get a job. You get 256 bucks. Yeah, buy a how much weed? Quarter pound, and you quit a, your job of dirt weed. Yeah, and quit my job. What was your plan with that? Smoke it all, okay, as quickly as possible. Maybe sell half of it. Just continue to feed my addiction. You know, I just wanted to party. I just wanted to have a good time. Then where do you go from there? So I kept doing that, and, and matter of fact, I started using methamphetamines again. Okay, and the gang was calling back. You know, this whole lifestyle was was calling back to me. And I had been gone away for a little while, and I hadn't been in contact with them. It made him upset. Um, And what ultimately ended up happening, which really propelled me into a whole nother mind state, um, basically, since they were so unhappy with me, 
they set me up and tried to have me killed. They, Wow. They, the gang did. The gang did. They turned on you. They did. Uh, one of my best friends turned on me. They held me in an uh, apartment for three and a half hours, beat me with baseball bats, tire irons, stabbed me 11 times. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Um, and uh, it was bad. I mean, fractured skull, brain damage, collapsed lung. Um, that sounds a lot worse than bad. It was terrible. It was bad. It it was bad. It, it like was on the news. It was lucky it was bad. to have survived that. Yes. And what happened from that, you know, and I didn't want to tell on anybody. You know, I was to all it happened to Kmart, you know? And that the cops Yeah, and the cops are like, Hey, then there ain't nothing behind Kmart. I'm like, Well, it was Shopco then I don't re- you know, look at I don't really remember. I'm like, look head So you, you were in. still trying to not rat out Absolutely. Absolutely, because I was angry. I that level of animosity that was shown towards me just enraged me to undescribable levels. And that's what propelled me even further into addiction, even further into drugs. Um, after that happened, I started continuing to use meth. It made me – I didn't trust people. But were you out of the gang at that point? I was out of the gang at that point. Okay. But I was still hanging around this crowd of using drugs. And it just kept getting deeper and deeper. And I kept digging myself in a deeper deeper hole. I mean – I was holding my own friends. I was like holding my own friends hostage because I was so paranoid that these people I thought cared about me. It's like these, you two in this room right now are like, Hey, come in here and then try to beat me to death. So now anytime I go around someone that says, Hey, come over here. What am I thinking? Especially if I'm high on meth. Yeah. You know, paranoid. paranoid, I'm paranoid and I'm having delusions because I've been up for a couple days and I'm thinking, Hey, these guys are going to kill me. Hey, they're my friends and I'm taking them and tying them up. And holding these guys at gunpoint. So you were point. literally holding them hostage. I was literally holding people okay. hostage. I was – Whoa. Yes. I was acting – it was unbelievable what I was doing. I mean I knew – and what ha- I ended up getting in a situation where uh, I got in a, a, a police chase. Okay, I got away and ended up at my grandparents' house and the SWAT team came. That day, there was a cop uh, in my local city who ended up basically saving my life, saving me from the SWAT team coming and, you know, getting me, uh, talked me into giving myself up, you know. And uh, that day, I realized that I was going to stop using methamphetamines. That's when I quit. I was about 20 years old, I think, at that time. In this episode of Project Recovery, we talk about suicide. We also discuss things of a sensitive nature. If you or someone you know is hurting, please call 1-800-273-8255. Yeah, so it was about a year or so after I got jumped. I think I got jumped about 19, and then at 20, I had quit using methamphetamines. But how But how does that happen? Because, I mean, yeah, well, I feel you're like describing... I probably am, yeah. Well, but I mean, I the, the chronology's there, but like, I'm interested in more your thought process, because here you are holding on to this idea of being part of this gang family while you're incarcerated. You come out, um, they're upset with you for being gone so long, so they turn on you beat you within an inch of your life it sounds like and now you're still now you said that enraged you you became more angry mm-hmm. so why would why would that threat of uh, the the SWAT team make you feel like like what did this officer say that developed insight there's got to be some change in your way of thinking because otherwise it would just be another you know place to push back in your life right well and i think what happened was I had people in my family was saying they could start telling that I was on something. I was trying to hide it, and you really can't hide it. I thought I was fooling people. I wasn't fooling anybody. Everyone was like, hey, where's Casey been for a year? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, mean, yeah. yeah. And I I was in and out of my family's lives and stuff, but they're kind of like, hey, man, I was losing all kinds of weight. You know, my friends were saying, dude, you're freaking out. What's going on? Right. You don't look healthy. No. Um, 
and when this event, did your grandparents? You said you were sort of close with them. Did yeah, they? and my grandparents, they were trying to help me, but I could see in their faces when I talked to them disappointment. They had an idea that something was going on. And as an addict, you know that look. Yeah. yeah. Where there's love there, but you know you're breaking their heart. They're trying to do whatever they can, but they don't know what to do. And I'll tell you what, that look, I mean, I, I can see it right now if I close my eyes, and it, it it's just heartbreaking. Right. And, I mean, I was still in for my family. I was still in for my friends to, to feed this addiction. Um, and I think what was happening was my behavior was getting so out of control. Erratic. And, yeah. And I don't know why this the whole incident with the SWAT team changed me. I mean, it was my family and then that. Like, you're about to go to prison. Like, these things that you're doing, you're going to end up killing somebody. Like, you're going to – this is – It's not just juvie anymore. This no, is this is going to be big. I'm, I'm going to end up losing my freedom. And it was like I was given a chance not, okay. not to go. And that's what made me quit the methamphetamines now – that I, I quit the methamphetamines, that doesn't mean I quit everything else. I just quit the methamphetamines, got away from all these people who were doing these these drugs. You know, I I just was that whole s- scene of people um, that it was like treachery is what it was, is what it reminded me of. You just couldn't trust anybody. Everyone's jonesing for drugs, stealing from other people, committing high risk crimes, um, crimes that, you know, lead you, put you in prison really quick. And I, after doing a year and a half in ju- juvenile facility, I was kind of thinking to myself, I don't want to do like five years, 10 years, 20 years. I, what am I doing? This is ridiculous. So you cleansed all your friends, you quit the meth, but you didn't quit everything. No, I, I still continued drinking heavily, smoking weed heavily, using anything I could get my hands on besides cocaine and meth heavily, you know, all the time. And I think what I was doing is the pain – I had a victim mentality. Let's just put it that way because I'd, I'd been jumped. I had people try to take my life. My mom had wronged me. My real father had basically abandoned me. So now what? I'm a victim. You know, All this stuff has happened because of all these other people. You know, The, the little charges I got sprinkled in of these times that I haven't told you about because I could go on for hours and hours about little – courtroom incidences i've been in you know duis and possession charges and stuff like that but what you're saying is you'd probably be doing what i'm doing if you went through what i went through is is kind of what your mentality was right yeah yeah it's ridiculous so you got this new group of friends and uh you're not doing meth or cocaine but you're still drinking and smoking weed heavily as you said yeah are you still getting in trouble i was i was trying i was no, I mean, yes, I was still getting in trouble, but it was um, more spaced out. And I was working. I started working, um, and I would just go to work, get my money, go home, smoke weed, and drink. And I thought that was okay. Um, you know, I was back then. I was pretty young, twenty one, twenty two. I was making thirteen hundred bucks a week after taxes, and I would blow eight hundred bucks or so on weed and alcohol and food just to have fun with my friends. Doesn't seem like. But still holding on to that victim mentality. Still holding on to the victim mentality. You know, the whole, you know, yeah, the cops are the bad guy, society's the bad guy, all this stuff. And that kind of justifies continuing to just party your life away because you're like, well, after all, I I didn't do this to me. Everyone else did this to me. Right. And so I kind of deserve to be able to just uh, smoke weed and drink and party. Right. And what it led led to is I started losing jobs. I couldn't keep a job because of my addictions, because of my behavior. So what ended up happening, you know, after years of this kind of behavior, um, I was just skating by. You know, I had some friends and things like that. My grandpa, who, you know, I said my grandparents, they were pretty good to me. My grandpa was like my dad. Um he passed away in 2004. So I was 21 years old when my grandpa passed away. And that tore me apart. I mean, it just it tore me apart. And again, I started falling into depression. Um, and 
wondering what, what I was doing. When he was around, I had some purpose. Even though I was drinking, smoking weed, I didn't feel like that was such a bad thing. But it was the mentality that was the bad thing. And maybe it was the using the drugs that was the bad thing. And now my grandpa's gone, and he was kind of like a pillar to me, and it's he's gone. He was kind of your family anchor, I assume. Right. Yeah. So here I am. Still. The one constant solid in his life. Yeah. Right. So it was about, let's see, 2004, two years of after him being gone, I had been in and out of a few jobs. Um really kind of questioning what I was doing. I'm, you know, in my 20s, you know, a lot of my friends had graduated college, were having good careers, and where am I? I'm in and out of these jobs. Uh, I was a metal fabricator. Um, I ended up getting a job at a a trailer manufacturing uh, facility up in northern Utah, uh, Clearfield area. And uh, I ended up quitting that job. Um, I don't know. I was just lost really. Um, and what happened was after I'd quit that job, I, it really put me in a dark place. Uh, so what happened one night I was, uh, I took some mushrooms with some friends to party. And, uh, after that night was getting winding down, I remember going up to my room and sitting there and was thinking to myself, you know, who are you? What what are you doing? Like, who have you become? Like, you're not successful. You've stolen from your family. You've stolen from your friends. You don't even have any real friends. I mean, does your family care? They say they care, but do they really care? Like, I can't keep a job. Like, I don't have money. All I do is spend all my money on drugs, like, like I'm not a rap star, you know, this ain't who I wanted to be. I'm angry. I'm hateful because of what these people have done to me. I, all I think about is harming them back. They're not around. I think about harming other people. I'm harming myself by doing all of this. Why am I here? I'm done. I'm done with this. And I, that night I decided that I was going to end my life. I I'd had enough. And uh, I sat on my bed for a bit and I I started crying and I made a decision that this is it. Like I'm not going on any longer. And I had, I had a gun uh, that I'd had for protection just in case, you know, these people had ever come back around that I could protect myself. I remember getting up and going into the bathroom, you know, I went to go use the bathroom and, I remember just collapsing to my hands and my knees in the bathroom and I just started sobbing and I, I laid on the bathroom floor and I just remember the cold floor on my face and it was like good and evil in me, like just let go. And another part of me just like, no, don't, no, no, just stay. It's okay. And another part of me like, just let go. And I, I just started vomiting. It was over. I was overwhelmed. I started vomiting on the floor. Um, I heard someone. My, I was living with my grandma at the time. She walked by the bathroom, and I kind of like, just murmured out, just help, help, help me. And she didn't hear me. She just kept walking by. And after battling on the bathroom floor for I don't know how long and laying in a puddle of vomit, I'd had enough. The decision was made. I I knew what I was going to do. So without much thought, I jumped up. I went wa- walked right back in my room, grabbed the pistol out of my uh, bedroom drawer there, put it underneath my chin, and pulled the trigger. Oh. You shot yourself? I did. Right underneath the chin. Can't really see the scar. And the bullet came out right here, right at the bridge of my nose. Yeah. So, you know, I don't, (laughs) I could go into what it's like to do something like that. I mean, it's not something that people want to do. I don't often tell people what it's like, but I think if, 
people knew what that actually felt like, they may not want to do it. I think people believe that you shoot yourself and you don't feel anything. That's absolutely not the case. Um, it felt like someone hit me in the side of the cheek with a sledgehammer. And uh, if you ever shot a rifle down a, a canyon before, that's what it sounded like. Just a big, long report of a gun. And uh, it, it must knock me unconscious. I just kind of blasted out. I mean, and I'd been doing mushrooms, so I was just kind of, you know, out of it. it just felt like I was in like a Star Trek movie for a second, you know. Uh, I remember hearing uh, someone like making noises and yelling. I couldn't really make it out because my ears were ringing really bad. My head was throbbing. I could hear it sounded like something like plastic, almost like a plastic bottle, like creaking, like crackling, like crackling. Mm -hmm. What that was was the bones of my face falling apart. I could hear what sounded like someone holding a, a, a hose over the floor. You know, or like cup pouring a cup of water on the floor. And what that was was it was blood running out of my face onto the floor. Oh my And I could hear my grandma yelling, What have you done? What have you done? And I couldn't really see her, but I could feel her presence by me. And I could hear her leave my room and and I could hear her on the phone with nine one one pleading with them. My grandson just shot himself. My grandson just shot himself. And I remember just this feeling of like, just it's just let go. It's over. Just, I knew what was going on. I knew what I had just done. Uh, there was no way to, I wasn't going to live. I remember I started lift, opening one of my eyes. And when I did, I exhaled. And I seen gun smoke come out of my face, and I could taste the I could taste the gunpowder, smell the gunpowder, you know, sweet pungent type smell. Um, my head was hurting, my face was hurting, and I could just hear her, just please hurry, please hurry, mm-hmm. and her yelling at me, "Why have you done this? Why have you done this?" And still, I was just like, just let go. It's okay. And I could feel myself relaxing. And I was like, my body was giving out, obviously. I mean, it was a pretty big impact. It was pretty devastating. And there was something in me. And I'll never forget this feeling of saying, I'm not dying like this. I've just killed myself. I've I've just committed suicide. Like, that's what's just happened here. And I tried to lift myself up. And I couldn't, and my head hit the ground. And I remember when my head hit the ground, I could feel like like a big sponge, and blood flew all over the wall. So I lifted myself up again, and this time I was able to get up. And I thought, I got to drive myself to the hospital now, right away. I got to get to the hospital. I'm dying. I went to go run down my stairs, and right when I did, I I ran face to face with the Weber County Sheriff in the in the kitchen. Hmm. And I remember trying to yell at him to get out of my way. I need to get to the hospital. But the roof of my mouth was hanging. You know, my hard palate was hanging in my mouth. My tongue had been blown to pieces. Um, I was just yelling and blood was going all over him. There was utter shock on his face. Yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah. He was the first responder. He was the first responder. I still – I feel bad for him. You know, that's got to be – a. The first responders are amazing human beings. I mean, what these guys go through is unbelievable. What they done for me was unbelievable. I'll never forget them. Um, you know, when the paramedics showed up, they told me to get down. They got me on a gurney. They pulled me, sort of pulled me out of the house. And I, I was saying, hey, I'm done. You know, I, this is over. And I was yelling at my ground, I'm so sorry. I, you know, I know what I've done. And I was just, I was in shambles because. You so know. you had maintained kind of this conscious awareness uh, of what we, what you were going through yeah. despite the damage done to your to your body. D- yes. You remember it pretty vividly. I absolutely – yeah, I will never forget it ever. I will never forget it. Um, you know, I've been told people to say, hey, I can't believe you remember that. I, I think it's very important to remember for me personally. 
to know where I came from, what I lived through, and why I'm here, and why I'm doing what I'm trying to do, why I'm telling my story, you know. So what was that recovery like? So you went to the hospital, and then what happened? So I went to the hospital, and I was in a coma for a little over a week. Um, and I wasn't aware of this, but they were telling my family, listen, you might be changing his diapers. We don't know if he's going to come out of this or not. Uh, he's in bad shape. The you've pro- already had brain damage from being beaten. Yeah. And now you've, I guess, shot through your jaw, your tongue, your hard palate, mm-hmm. and up through the bridge of your nose. Right. And the what had happened was I, I'd lost so much blood from this event that, again, brain damage. I wasn't right. getting oxygen to my brain. Um, my ba- arteries and stuff had collapsed. They had to do, like, main lines, I guess, into, into me to try to do blood transfusions and try to get stuff going. Right. I guess it was really hard for them to keep me going, keep me alive. Sure. People bleed out pretty quickly in a situation like right. that. Yeah. Right. And so I remember just kind of waking up in the hospital and not really knowing what was going on. Um, a week later. Yeah, about a week later, yeah. And – it was uh, – I didn't understand at first what was going on. It took me a minute to realize that the ambulance ride wasn't a dream, that this wasn't a dream, and exactly why I was here. And watching my family members crying at my bedside, wow. you know, asking me why I'd done this, and the guilt that I had inside of myself was unbelievable. When they asked, why did you do this, what was your answer? I couldn't answer. I had breathing tubes in my th- – I had a tracheotomy. What would have your answer been? I don't know. I don't know what my answer would have been, to be quite honest. I At that moment, I don't think I was – I hadn't put it all together yet. Why? For sure. But your grandma was there and other family members yep, were there? Yeah, family and some of my older friends who were not in drugs, not doing drugs and stuff like that. They they had came. People I hadn't even seen for a really long time were there every single day. I was in the hospital for about a month. Um, you know, I had to learn how to walk right again. I couldn't read at first. Um, it was a big recovery process. You know, it, it was very difficult. Um, really, really difficult. So in the hospital for a month, but your recovery of all those facilities, faculties, excuse me, kind of went on for a long time. Yeah. How long did that go on? Probably another six months. And yeah. the mental aspect of it, I mean, when you do something like that, I lost trust in myself completely. Um, and that lasted a decade. You know, really, it was it was tough. After you got out of the hospital, did you go back to drinking and drugging no (laughs) i not really i didn't i mean i would drink later on but not like i did before i never went back to i'm that's what my life consists of now that ain't what just kind of wasn't like that i mean i wasn't on the old straight and narrow you know but i was but i wasn't head over heels into drugs either. I yeah. had realized what had kind of gotten me there, what the mentality was that had gotten me there. And really a lot of it was just not knowing my own self-worth. I didn't have any self-worth. I didn't have any value in myself. And that's what took me a long time to realize is that I had lost my self-worth. That's why I'd done what I did back when I was in grade school, this acceptance of, of just instead of accepting who I was and caring about who I was – I cared more about what other people were thinking about me than I cared about anything else. It's interesting. You had uh, friends you hadn't seen in a long time coming to your bedside every day while you're in the hospital. What did you think about that? It was um, unbelievable. It was um, – Because that flies in the face of uh, when you you feel worthless as a person, you would – you can't believe people would come and do that, people who who – you haven't seen in forever, but but that must have made an impact on you. Absolutely, and not only them was it was the nurses as well. The even the staff there. I had nurses crying at my bedside, saying, "You can make this." They had no, they knew what I had done, but they weren't judging me. And these people, my friends, they weren't judging me either. They were. They wanted to know why, how come, like what what did we do? What could have we done differently? 
So they were showing you had worth to yes. them. Yes, yes. So let me ask you this. What does life look like for Casey now? Life's a great place. <laughs> it's it's fantastic. I love it. It's it's a good place. I'm glad to be alive. Um, I have a family now. Uh, it's great. I try to treat everyone with respect, especially, you know, not knowing uh, how other people are feeling. Uh, right now, I've been trying to go around talking to schools and stuff like that, trying to kind of spread my message and empower people, give, tell people what. So you're able to go into the schools and share a version of this story to try to do what? What's your goal? My goal is to get people to treat each other in a genuine manner, to, to treat each other with respect because you just don't know what someone else is living with. You don't know what burdens they have. You know, don't judge. It's just because someone's different than you. Don't judge them. Just because their clothes aren't fashionable and just because they don't have all the same cool stuff. Kids need that message, don't they? Absolutely. I mean, look at where we're living in right now. We have, you know, my buddy's daughter is 11-year-old, just committed suicide. I mean, we have kids now committing suicide. It's unbelievable. The rate of suicide is unbelievable right now. And a lot of it is that. It is the separation instead of understanding that how alike we all are. We worry about how different we all are, and we're really not all that different. You know, we all have bad days, and we just don't know when we say something nice to somebody that it may it may save their life. You just don't know. That's true. You know, and and they we need it. We you just treat people with, with respect, and like I tell kids, most of all, if you're into if you're into drawing. Be into drawing. You know, if you like math, if you like coloring, whatever it is, like it. That's okay. You know, that's great. Do what you do. Be who you want to be. Validate your yourself and your passions and interests. Absolutely. And if, like me and Mr. Scott are different, but if, if he wants to do something different, hey, that's awesome. You know, I, I'm glad that you like doing that. What, can and I help that you That he wears that? weird hats. and Yeah. You know my dad, Mr. Scott? I do not. Because <laughs> I'm Casey. Hey, Casey, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's amazing. And and, and, I, and I'm in awe. And so much to the fact that I want to have you back on the podcast to talk more about what's going on with you. So thank you. What would you say to somebody out there who might be in a dark place? There's always someone that cares. For sure. Um, make a phone call. Reach out to somebody. Don't be afraid to ask for help ever. Um, don't let your don't let your own pride stop you from getting help. There's always someone out there willing to help you. I love that. Dr. Matt? Yeah, it's, it's hard. I, I love that message. It's hard, though, for people, especially younger people, to know that. But... The more we hear stuff, the more it sticks. And it's wonderful that you're spending your time giving back and trying to get that message out to kids because, at, I mean, the younger a person can accept the fact that they're loved, that they're important, the less likely they would be to consider taking their lives and the more likely they will be to accept and reach out and get some help. So I appreciate what you're doing. Thank you. I'm also writing a book right now regarding this so for adults so that everyone can – read it as adults i'll tell you what when that book's done you come back here and we'll talk about it and we'll get it going sounds good i appreciate it hey wishing you nothing but success and love in the new year thank you for inviting uh, project recovery into your ears into your home into your cars uh if you know somebody who needs some help have them do what i did give pinnacle recovery center a call you're listening to project recovery a ksl podcast program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. 
KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.